Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Our reading this evening is taken from Philippians, chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. And you'll find that on page 1178 in the Church Bibles. Philippians chapter 1, beginning to read at verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, Most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, What has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome. It's very good to have you here with us tonight. Do keep your Bibles open at that reading from Philippians. It's on page 1178 in these church Bibles, if you just closed your Bibles. Uh, Let me pray as we look at this passage together. Our Father in heaven, the words before us tonight are, are deep words. They take us right to the very heart of our existence in this life and the next. And I pray you'd help us tonight to see more of Christ, to be persuaded that we can give our lives to him completely. 
In his name we pray. Amen. I used to live in Oxford, and every summer the city would be flooded with visitors and tourists, and often they would make their way down to the riverbank to hire a boat and to try punting. And uh, if you walked along the riverbank on a summer day, it would be not uncommon to see a nervous would-be punter standing on the riverbank looking down at this narrow, wobbly little boat, trying to decide if they had enough courage to step off the riverbank down into the boat. And of course, occasionally it uh, didn't go very well. I wonder if we felt a bit like that this week. Uh, Matt mentioned how last week we launched our verse for the year, Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I've been wrestling with that verse this week. This has been up on my uh, wall uh, opposite my desk as I've worked. And part of me is excited by the verse. I, I do want to live for Christ. Isn't that true for us if we're Christians? But also part of me is petrified by the thought of stepping, if you like, off the bank and putting my full weight, both feet, onto Christ. What would happen if we did echo Paul's words and put both feet, all our weight, onto Christ? Could he handle our weight in life? What would happen if we began to tell our friends at school about Jesus or our colleagues at work, our family, our neighbors? What would happen to our prayer lives if they became centered on Christ and his will? What would happen to our diaries if we increasingly made serving God's people and caring for their needs a major goal in our life? What would happen to our bank accounts? Can we take the step? with both feet off the bank, and to stand on Christ with everything? Will he take our weight? We've got one life, one shot at happiness and meaning. Will he let us down? Will we miss out? And as we grapple with those questions, fears can come at us. And I think for that reason, because of fear, many Christians have one foot still on the bank as they dangle one foot onto Christ. And if you try doing the splits, it's not a comfortable place to be, is it? We saw last week how uh, Paul writes with great thanks for the Philippians. They had started out on the Christian life well. They had shared together with Paul in the grace of God. He is so thankful for them. But now he wants them to press on in their Christian life, to press on to know Christ better, to press on to make knowing Christ the thing that changes their life completely. It's how Paul is living. You can't miss it from our reading in Philippians 1. Paul just oozes Christ. Every decision, every opportunity, every moment for Paul is about Christ. It is possible to live this way, both feet off the bank onto Christ. And he wants the Philippians... And I think us tonight, to copy him. The thing is, though, <laughs> Paul's writing from prison. And he's about to go on trial for his life. And if you are at all nervous about the thought of giving your whole life to follow Christ, Paul is not a great advert for what happens to you if you go for it. 
And so Paul writes to persuade, I think, the nervous Philippians and us tonight that it is totally, totally worth it. Two points. We really can trust Christ with our life, the lives first. Suffering results in gospel advance. Let's pick it up, verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. He's talking about how he's a prisoner in Rome. And Paul doesn't say that despite what's happened to me, the gospel is still advancing. No, he says something far more shocking. He says, it is because of what's happened to him that the gospel's advancing. How? Verse 13. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. It was common practice for uh, the Roman guards to chain themselves to their prisoners or at the very least to be in the same room as them. And so it's not at all hard to imagine Paul as a prisoner starting to, to chat with his guard. Do you know why I'm in prison? Can I tell you about Jesus? I've met the King of Kings. His name is not Caesar. It's Christ. Can I tell you why Jesus died on a Roman cross? And so word spreads throughout the palace guard and everyone else. And you have to wonder, how else could the gospel have advanced two and a half thousand miles from Jerusalem to Rome and into this elite Roman guard unless Paul had been a prisoner in chains? Suffering results in gospel advance. And not just through Paul, verse 14. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Before Christmas, some of the church family, maybe some of you tonight, um, headed down to the center of Sheffield to pass out Bibles to people walking by. And I've spoken to a few of you, and I think everyone was was pretty nervous before heading down because our culture has moved away from Christianity. And so as you pass out Bibles, it's not a popular thing to do anymore. You don't know how people are going to respond. No wonder people were nervous heading down to pass out these Bibles. But eventually someone in the group plucked up the courage and had a conversation with someone and they, and they passed out a Bible. And then someone else saw that and, and they passed out a Bible and then they passed out a Bible. And boldness became contagious. And that afternoon, hundreds of Bibles got passed out in this uh, city center in Sheffield. What about when things get more extreme? Last Sunday, the 8th of January, marks the anniversary of the death of Jim Elliot and his four friends. A famous story, how they left promising lives and careers in the States and went to Ecuador to bring the gospel to a remote tribe in the jungle there. 
they had just arrived, they hadn't even settled in properly when the very tribe they'd gone to reach turned on them and killed those five men. And you look at the young lives and you see how little progress they made with the gospel and the tribe. And you think, well, does suffering really advance the gospel? Well, keep the story going. And Jim's widow, Elizabeth, spurred on by his example, took their young child and went to live with the very tribe that had killed him. And the Lord opened a door for the gospel. And through her witness, many of that tribe came to Christ. And we will never know, I think, this side of glory, how many other people who have heard the story of Jim and his four friends and have been spurred on by their boldness to, in their own lives, speak of Christ. Boldness is contagious. And as we look through the history of the church, we see this pattern again and again. The gospel tends to advance most, not in times of peace, but in times of suffering. Just one example. Cambodia. In the 1970s, under the Khmer Rouge, 90% of the Christians in that country were either martyred or they fled the country. There was a tiny handful only left by the end. But out of the fire of that persecution, the church has seen dramatic growth. According to OMF, Today, there are around 250,000 Christians. Suffering results in gospel growth. For the Philippians, the forecast is for growing suffering. That's clear next week. Paul is not promising them an easy life. But he is showing them that if they commit their lives into the hands of the sovereign Lord... He can so order things in and through them that even if suffering comes to them, he can advance the gospel through that experience. So too for us today. Our culture is becoming increasingly offended by the claim that Jesus Christ is Lord. If we invite our classmates to Christianity Explored, very few of them will thank you for it. If we talk about Christ in the office, or with our family. Well, a little while ago, there'd be polite indifference. But now, increasingly, there's just well, there's hostility. And if we think that suffering is a disaster, we'll keep quiet. But if we know that the Lord can use suffering to advance his gospel, even if we can't always see how, then it gives us that that boldness, that confidence to step off the bank with both feet to live for Christ. There is one other surprising way that suffering results in gospel advance here in Philippians 1. You see, Paul's chains had, had prompted more people to speak about Christ. But not everyone did so for good motives. Verse 15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy. Or rivalry. In verse 17, these people are trying to cause Paul trouble while he's in prison. Maybe they saw his chains as a chance to muscle in on the Christian speaking circuits. Perhaps a sense of empire building. We can't be sure. But remarkably, Paul says, verse 18, but what does it matter? 
the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motive or true, Christ is preached. We must be very careful before we claim to know someone's motives. Only God truly knows the heart. And so I'm very reluctant, I think, to apply this into particular circumstances today. But there is a comfort here. Human motives are frequently flawed. I know mine are. I guess I'm not alone. As long as Christ is faithfully preached, a great work can be done, despite the human heart. And so verse 18, Paul rejoices. Suffering results in gospel advance. But there is one other and even more profound reason why we don't need to be scared to step off the bank onto Christ with both feet. Here's our second point. Death results in Christ himself. Paul's focus now shifts from his prison chains to his forthcoming trial. And at first glance, he seems remarkably confident that he's going to be released. Verse 19. And yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Paul had been released from prison miraculously before. In fact, if you go to Acts 16, we see one example of when he was in Philippi and through an earthquake, he was released from prison. So it's not hard to imagine, perhaps he's thinking that if the people pray for him and the spirit works, that he'll experience a similar kind of miraculous escape from prison. And wouldn't that help us with our suffering? If we knew that when the heat got turned on us, that if God's people prayed for us and the Spirit came and worked that we'd be released from the heat. That would really help us, wouldn't it, to be a bit more bold for Christ? But that's not what Paul means. Verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. You see, Paul doesn't know which way the trial is going to go. Later, he seems much more positive that he will be released, that he will see the Philippians again. But the reality is, he just doesn't know. It could go either way. He could be released or he could be executed. And so when when Paul talks about his deliverance, he doesn't necessarily mean release from prison. No, verse 21. For, For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. You see, for Paul, death can also be deliverance. How can Paul speak this way? You know, for us, so often, death is something to be dreaded or denied. Well, verse 23, I desire to depart and to be with Christ which is better by far. Before Jim Elliott went to Ecuador, uh, many of his friends thought he was being foolish to give up 
a life packed full of potential to give it all up and to leave it behind and to go to this tribe with no certain future. And he said this, famously, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So often what holds us back from giving more of ourselves to following Jesus is because we treasure the things of this world. We think that we can find life and ultimate purpose and lasting joy in money, careers, the approval of other people, fleeting pleasures. But Christ is better by far. Jesus made us. From his throne in glory, he looked down and saw us, and he saw our sin as well. Even the secret sins that no one else sees, but are in our hearts. And rather than turning his nose in disgust away from us, he drew close to us. He came down from heaven, he took on flesh, and he died on the cross to serve us in the most profound way. His death is our salvation from sin. Having died on the cross, he was raised to the place of ultimate glory in heaven, given the name above every name. And one day, when the time is right, he will come back from heaven for us as our savior to bring us safely into the world to come where there is no more death or pain or sorrow. Is there anyone or anything better than Christ in this world? Is there anyone or anything with more glory or majesty or worth than Christ? Is there anyone whose hands we are more safe in than Christ? Our money, our career, our reputation, these things do not love us. They can't die for us. They cannot guarantee our future. And that is why Paul can call his death deliverance. Death results in Christ himself. Paul's not depressed. He can see lots of good things about his life going on. He'd love to be with the Philippians. He can see how he could help them to progress in their joy and faith. In, in a sense, he wants to stay in this life. And also, Paul's, Paul knows death is not a good thing. In chapter 2, he'll talk about how he was spared sorrow upon sorrow because his good friend Epaphroditus didn't die when he was ill. And yet, if Paul's future is to die after the trial, it will result in Christ, which is better by far. As we weigh up whether we have the bravery to step off the bank onto Christ with both feet to really start to live our lives for him. As we weigh up the risks of living that way, doesn't Paul's perspective give us a huge reason to, to go for it? When all is said and done, the worst thing that can happen to us is death. And death is gain because we gain more of Christ. Paul knows the Philippians need help to make that step 
he's going to go on showing them in his letter why Christ is so glorious, so trustworthy of our lives. Please keep coming back in this series in Philippians. But Paul also knows he needs help to go on taking that step to follow Christ with both feet. He is human after all. As he writes this part of Philippians 1, his phrases become more ragged. His words start flowing out more quickly. You can almost imagine him sort of pacing back and forth in his prison cell, imagining the moment when he stands on trial and the question comes to him, Paul, will you denounce Christ as Lord? Will you give glory to Caesar instead? What will he do? What will he say on his trial? Will he betray Christ? Or will he exalt him? Thomas Cranmer was a leading figure in the English Reformation back in the 1500s. Along with others, he played a crucial role in the church rediscovering the joy of the truth that our righteousness comes only through faith in Christ alone. But when a new queen came to the throne, she was opposed to the Reformation, opposed to those leading it. Uh, She had Cramner put in prison and put huge pressure on him to renounce his teaching about Christ. She even had two of his buddies, Latimer and Ridley, burned at the stake. And she made sure that Cramner's cell was close enough to the stake that he could hear their cries of agony as they died. And eventually the pressure took its toll and Cramner caved in. And he renounced his previous teaching about Christ. He signed documents saying that he was back with Rome against the Reformation. It was a dark day for the church in this country. It's that kind of shame that Paul is worried about here in verse 20. He eagerly expects that when his moment comes, he will exalt Christ. Either remaining alive, which will mean more preaching about Christ, or by being willing to die for Christ... Therefore, showing a watching world that Christ means more to him than death or life itself. How is Paul so confident he won't cave in? How can Paul make that step with both feet off the bank to live for Christ? Well, verse 19, because he knows the Philippians will be praying for him and the Spirit will be helping him. And this is so important If we are Christians, we do want to live for Christ, don't we? In our best moments, we can even say to live is, uh, to die is gain. Uh, But don't don't we wobble in our confidence to live that way? I know I do. I I wobble even inviting someone to the carol service, let alone when my life's on trial. If we are going to step off the bank... And put both feet on Christ. We need other Christians to be praying for us. We need a deep work of the Spirit in our hearts to help us to see just how precious Christ is. Just how glorious he is. How worth living for Christ is. And as we pray, 
God can do that work in us. After Cranmer's U-turn, the authorities wanted to maximize the publicity that would come from a, a famous church leader renouncing his former teaching. And so they made arrangements for him to read out a public statement at the university church on the high street in Oxford. They put a platform in the center of the church. You can see the grooves in the stone pillars where the platform was erected. Even today, you can go and look at the grooves. You can imagine the scene, a packed church. Cramner was brought in, in chains, put on the platform, and he began to read out his statement. But then as he read out this prepared statement, something started to go wrong. The authorities noticed that he wasn't sticking to the script. He started to change the words. And in that moment, he declared that he had done a U-turn on his U-turn. And he renounced the things he had written. That he was for Christ and the Reformation against the Roman heresy he'd been standing up against. And chaos ensued. And over the roar of the crowds, he was heard shouting his confidence in Christ until the authorities came and dragged him off out the church door, around the corner to Broad Street, where they chained him to a stake and burned him alive. And as the flames began to grow around him, bystanders saw him take his hand, and he took the hand, the hand that had signed his recantation, he took the hand and he held it in the flames, and it burned first. And then he cried out, I see the heavens open, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then he died. We may never know why Cramner did a U-turn on his U-turn. Why it was that he was able to stand firm in the end and give his life for Christ. But surely, there were people praying for him. By God's grace, our country is not yet where it was in Cranmer's day or in Paul's. But the forecast is sobering. In this month of prayer and beyond, let's be praying that the Lord works in us so that we increasingly understand the sweetness, the joy of being with Christ our Savior such that we can say with Paul and Cramner, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Whatever might happen in the years to come. And I wonder, would you pray that for me? Because I wobble every day. And I just wonder if the person sitting next to you, the person in your small group, I just wonder if they wobble as well. But if we commit ourselves to praying for each other, God can do a deep and mighty work in us. Let's pray. Just a moment of silence. I wonder what is holding us back from taking that next step to follow Christ. Father, we come to you with our fears, 
please show us more of Christ. Please show us more of his glory and his majesty and his love. Comfort us with the knowledge that if we put our lives into his hands, he will never let us down. Amen.